What a good morning it's been. We had a good 7 o'clock service, good number in attendance, and then we had some good food. We all left fed up, but we're not fed up right now. We're just being blessed, amen? God is so good. We're looking at John chapter 20 today, John chapter 20. Excited about preaching today to you, and I've entitled this The Rest of the Story. Some of you remember Paul Harvey would always have the rest of the story, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. We know about the cross, but there's more to the story. He's no longer dead. Now, we're going to look at John 20 in just a moment, but just a word on the four gospel writers. All four gospel writers give us this account of Mary Magdalene, uh, the first one to the tomb. Matthew, as you know, was one of the 12 followers of Jesus. He was a tax collector. He held a banquet to reach his friend uh, and his co-workers, friends and co-workers. And John was also one of the 12. We'll talk about John in a moment. But Mark and Luke were not disciples at the time of Christ. Mark had been too young at that time. He goes by John Mark. He was a great friend to Peter. Peter calls him his own son. He was a missionary companion of Paul before and after a problem. Still worked with Paul later, uh, but was too young to have been a disciple. Luke was not a disciple, nor was he a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a physician, but a traveling companion of Paul, who also wrote, besides Luke, the book of Acts. But Matthew and John were disciples. John was one of the sons of Zebedee. He was a fisherman. He uh, was part of that inner circle. Remember that inner circle, the Peter, James, and John? We find them three great times, three great episodes in Scripture. Can you imagine their emotion when Jesus called just Peter, James, and John in as he raised Jairus' daughter? And then we find in the Mount of Transfiguration, the jubilation as before them, Moses and Elijah light up, and there's the Lord Jesus, and that must have been exuberant. And then we find them in Gethsemane. And while Jesus is praying, he's praying so hard that blood is coming out of his pores. That is a medical condition. He was praying that hard, yet they had fallen asleep. And can you imagine how they felt at that time? So here's John, one of the, one of the three we call the three of the inner circle. And the Bible says, John says that he was one who Jesus loved. He says it five times. He wrote five books of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the epistles, and the gospel. And he's the only one that went on to live a full life. And Today we're looking at his account. So let's stand and read these two verses. John chapter 20. You've heard of faith, hope, and charity. Charity meaning love. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. And we're going to look at episodes this morning of faith, hope, and charity. But first, we're going to look at love or charity as we look at Mary Magdalene. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene, early when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Bless us, God, as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. Mary didn't know shortly after she would know and fully understand. Lord, help us to understand the greatness of the resurrection today. Bless us, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All four gospel writers talk about 
Mary Magdalene. And she is our example of love. Now we could have talked about John. We already talked about him being the one Jesus loved. And in John's epistle, chapter 4 and verse 10, I'm paraphrasing. He says, it's not surprising that I love the Lord. What's surprising is that He loves me. You know, we don't love the Lord enough, but it shocks us that He loves us, right? Because we know what we are. We really know our own hearts. And He just keeps loving us and loving us. It's that Old Testament word, kezed, which means a love that doesn't let go. He never lets go of me even though I'm a jerk sometimes. He keeps loving me. And that's the thing John said. But John's not our example this morning. Mary is. And we pick up in verse 11. And here's Mary Magdalene. Remember, Magdalene does, isn't her last name. It, represent, it represents excuse me, where she's from, Magdala. And we find her in Scripture mentioned 12 times, all four writers. We find her at, at the tomb, at the cross, then at the burial, and then at the tomb. She was the first one to the tomb and the first one to tell uh, others, the first one to see Jesus. She's quite prevalent in this uh, portion of Scripture. But all four mention her. And remember, she had been possessed by demons. Seven demons, according to Luke chapter 8. Now, some have mistakenly said she was a prostitute. There's no evidence of that anywhere in Scripture. No historical evidence, none in Scripture. But And being possessed by seven demons, I don't know if anyone would want to be near her. You know? I, I've a time or two met people I thought were possessed by demons, and people didn't want to flock around them, you know? Uh, and so here she is, a woman who had a great change in her life. Years ago, I had a couple in my church. He was Ukrainian. He'd gotten saved in our church. And his wife had been a Christian all her life. And she came to me frustrated one day and says, I don't understand. My husband's got all this joy. He's excited. He's talking about the Lord all the time. He wants to be at church 24-7 and all this and all that. And she said, I've been a Christian all my life, and I don't feel that. And I reminded her of the fact that only the Samaritan came back grateful. Because those that have been forgiven much have a great amount of gratefulness. And Mary Magdalene was one of those people. She could see a great change in her life. And so she's always there. And she's here early in the morning. She's weeping. You can just imagine. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And there's two angels near where the body was, but Jesus is not there. And she thinks they've stolen the body. Now remember, the disciples had fled in fear when Jesus was crucified. Here's this woman and at the cross, at the burial, at the tomb. She's the first one there. It's dark. The disciples hadn't got there, but she's here. And here's these angels, and she wonders what happened to her. And they say to her, woman, why weepest thou? And she's because they've taken away my master, my Lord. And I don't know where he is. And when she had said this, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now you'd think, well, of course she'd recognize Jesus. You have to understand something. Jesus had been dead for three days. He hadn't yet ascended to the Father. He hadn't eaten. He lost all his blood. And yet he's resurrected, but there's no doubt the wounds are fresh and sore. He's resurrected, but he's not glorified yet. And so he's skinny, half the man he used to be. It's dark, and she doesn't notice it's Jesus until he calls her by name, and he says, Mary. 
He says, Mary, in verse 16. Woman, why weepest thou? Jesus asked her, why are you weeping again? She said, and she says, I don't know where the body is. And, she, and then Jesus said, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which means master teacher. Rabbi's teacher. He's the master teacher. Did you know he's the master teacher? He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He's a master of everything. He's Lord of all, and one day he'll come back and reign as Lord and King in this universe. And so she sees him, and she's weeping. I, I just, you know, you want to just cry with her as she's so broken. The man who totally changed her life is gone. And they didn't understand the concept of the resurrection. He, he tried to tell them in so many ways. He said, they'll destroy this temple, but I'll raise it back up. They thought he was speaking of the building. But he told the disciples, I'm going to go away. Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. And so he told them and told them, and it didn't sink in. And Mary's here, one of his loyal, faithful followers. She's weeping, and then all of a sudden, you can imagine the jubilation. Think of, the, think of it. If you were there, and you had been crying. The person you love more in the world than anyone had died. And all of a sudden, there he is. And look at what it says here. Jesus said unto her, she says, Master, and of course you know all the emotion involved here. We don't read it in the text, but we know it's there. And Jesus said, Touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now think of this. Touch me not. Now, pastor in Luke, he told the disciples to handle me. And later in, in this chapter, he says to Thomas, take your hand and put it in the hole in my side. Touch me. It's me. So why would he tell her not to touch him? Well, the Greek grammar makes it very clear. He says, don't continue to hold on to me. Don't continue to touch me. You know what Mary was doing. You know what she's doing. She's hugging him and holding on to him and sobbing and rejoicing and probably squeezing him to the point of cutting off his circulation. She may be kissing his feet and holding his legs, but I know she didn't want to let go of him. This is her master, and she's excited. He's alive. Up from the grave he arose for the mighty victor over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Here he is. He's alive, and all he did for her, and he's here. And she couldn't let go. And he said, Mary, you got to stop. You got to stop. I got things to do and places to go. What an example of love. Do you recognize the Lord is here today? Do you recognize Him when you're on your knees to pray? Do you know He's in the car with you? Even when you're fussing on the way to church. Even when everything's gone bad, he's there. And when everything's good, he's there. And then we find not only do we have this example of love, but we have a great example of faith. Look in chapter 20, and now we have Thomas. Now, again, we could talk about John. Just like we could have talked about John as the example of love, we could talk about John as the example of faith. Why, Pastor? Well, think of this. In John's gospel, he used the Greek word pistos, which is translated either believer faith. He used it 98 times. If you want to preach about faith, John's a great book to preach or teach or study on the subject of faith. 
When you become a Christian and you have that little tiny faith of a mustard seed, most pastors will say, read John, or maybe Romans, but read John. It's a great book for growing your faith, isn't it? But we're not going to talk about John. We're going to talk about someone who is a doubter. I like all the nicknames these guys have. You know, Thomas now a doubter. And we pick up in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, which means twin, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples were there, and, and they said to him, Thomas, we've seen you. Now you've got, you've got 11. Ten of the 11 are saying, Thomas, we've seen you. And Thomas says, I, I don't believe you. There's no way that happened. There's, he's, he died. I, he's dead. There's no way. I won't believe it unless I touch his hands and I touch his thigh. And I thigh, I mean his thigh. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. That's how he felt. And eight days later, Jesus appears. They're in a room with the door shut. And Jesus walks through the wall. You know, the one who can walk on the water can walk through walls. And here he is. He's in their presence all of a sudden. And he knows every heart. Did you know he knows your heart today? He knew the heart of Thomas. And look what he says. He knew everything. And he said to Thomas in verse 27, First, he said, peace be unto you. They were startled, shocked, ooh, like a ghost. Here he is. He says to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but what? Believing. That means faith. Have faith, Thomas. Touch me. I know you needed to touch me. He goes on to say, you're blessed for believing, but how much more are others blessed that will never see me? Did you know being a Gentile is pretty special? Because we believe by faith. I will always think I'd like to have lived in that time. But it's also special to believe by faith. One day our faith will become real. It'll become sight. But we're blessed for believing by faith without ever seeing the Lord. A lot of times people want signs and wonders. Jesus said the adulterous generation needs signs and wonders. Referring to the Jews. We believe by faith. And as you grow in Christ, your faith increases and He becomes more real and you know more and more and more that He's he's real and He's there and He's with you. And He's involved and He's sovereign. I had a prayer answered this week. I've had a prayer answered every week for the last three weeks. And I just say thank you, Lord, for another prayer answered. I feel like, John, sometimes I'm the one Jesus loves. And I know He loves everybody. He's not a respecter of persons, but you can feel that love when you spend time with him. And, and here, here, now Thomas is confronted, but he says something that stands out as the greatest expression of faith in all of Scripture. Thomas says here, my Lord, calls Jesus, my Lord and my God. The word Lord means master. So I said, Jesus, my master, and then he says, my God. That's our word theos. Our word theology comes from that. And it ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. He's addressing him as the God of gods and as his personal master. So he's addressing Jesus as my Lord and my God. That's the greatest expression of faith. So Thomas, Jesus said, don't be an unbeliever, but be one of faith. Be a believer. And now Thomas finally believes. And the Lord says, you're blessed, but those that haven't seen me are really blessed. And then we get to one of the most practical things in Scripture in John chapter 21, an example of hope, faith, hope, and charity. We've looked at love. 
and we've looked at faith. Now we're going to look at hope. And again, we could talk about Thomas here. Because all of a sudden he has hope. He thought Jesus was dead. He didn't believe he rose from the dead. He thought Mary and all the others were deceived. Maybe they'd seen a ghost. Now he's touched him. But he's not our example. We're looking at someone who wrote an epistle about the blessed hope. We're looking at Simon Peter. Now, Peter's name meant small stone. We used to say he's a chip off the old block. He's not quite like Jesus, but he's getting there. You know, he's just a little stone. Thou art Petros, little stone, and upon this gigantic rock I'm going to build my church. And we know that rock to be the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. And we know that Peter even wrote later in 1 Peter 2.5 that we're all stones and part of a spiritual house. Did you know you're a stone like Peter? And the profession of faith of, the, of Peter in the Lord Jesus Christ is what saved him. He had faith in the foundation the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Peter. And now there's a lot to say about Peter. I like Peter, but he's kind of a rabble-rouser. Sometimes I look at Peter and I think, oh man, he's just like me when he's carnal. You know, soldiers come and Peter cuts the guy's ear off. And he wasn't going for his ear. He was going for the head. He was going to decapitate him. That's exactly how they fought. They'd take the guy's head off. And the guy ducked and he got his ear. That's Peter. Peter boasted and said, you're not going to wash my feet. And then he also boasted and said, I'll die for you. I'll go, I'll, I'll fight and die for you. And then Jesus said to him, which must have been humbling, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. When you get home, maybe you can look up Psalm chapter 1. And this is interesting. Psalm chapter 1 said, Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. If you read the 26th chapter of Matthew, verse 71, you find Peter walking with the ungodly when he says, I don't know the man. I don't know him. And then Psalm 1 says, Nor standeth in the way with sinners. And two verses later, we find Peter standing with sinners when he says, I don't know the man. And then finally we find Psalm 1, 1 says, nor sitting in the seat of the scornful. And here Peter's sitting with some people around a fire and he curses and swears and gets mad and blows up. I don't know him. And immediately the cock crew. And the Bible said Peter went out and wept bitterly. And that Greek word's interesting. It can mean violently. So he is sobbing. He's hurting on the inside. He's He's just crushed. He realizes exactly what God said happened. He denied the Lord. He wasn't willing to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. He does what we do sometimes in the secular world. I remember years ago, I was in middle school. And I'd just become a Christian. I was about 13. And the prettiest girl in our middle school showed up to my church. And I thought, this is divine appointment. I thought... She's at my church, and now I have something in common with her. Well, she got to school the next week and said, Danny Mao is a religious nut. He's a fanatic, I guess because I was at church. And I was crushed, and I just sort of said, no, 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 I, I have to go to church because my parents make me. What was I doing? I was denying the Lord. We've all done that a time or two in our life, embarrassed to stand, say we're a Christian, especially when times are tough. I mean, when you got some nut jobs out protesting against military funerals and saying those GIs are dying because of gays, you're sometimes thinking, ooh, I don't know if I want to admit I'm a Christian. Now, that's understandable. 
But sometimes we're just cowardice. And I've been there and done that. Don't have a t-shirt, and if I had one I wouldn't wear it, I'd be ashamed to say that I've denied the Lord. And I haven't always lived up to what I should live up to in God's kingdom. But, but I, I know that God's a gracious God. And so he approaches Peter. Now remember this. Peter denied him how many times? This is Jesus' third appearance. Third time now he's appeared to Peter. And here they are in 21, chapter 1. Peter, it says here, there's gathered together. Simon Peter, Thomas, this is, this is doubting Thomas, called Didymus because he's a twin, and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is a person the Bible said didn't have any guile. One day I'll, I only have about 400 sermons that I want to preach to you. That's one of them. One day I'll take Nathaniel, the one of no guile, and we'll have Jacob over here, the one of deceit. Remember, he was the deceiver, and we'll compare them and find out which one we are in our walk. I've been here, haven't you? I've been a deceiver. I've lied, and white lies are really black lies, you know, and, and it, 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 I, I've, I've been there and done that as well. I don't always like to use myself, but you can identify with the fact that I'm just a sinner saved by grace like you are. We understand that, don't we? If you think, well, I've never lied, well, you're lying right now by saying you've never lied. So uh, one year I was speaking to a men's group, and I said, how many, how many men have struggled with lust? And a few hands went up, and I said, the rest of you struggle with lying. Uh, you know, because men know that's a battle we face. And so we have to be honest and confess our faults. One and not our sins, but our faults to one another, don't we? Admit to a brother in Christ, hey, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? It's called humility. Arrogance never has a problem. No, I, I don't need any prayer. You know, I got it all together. Yeah, you just can't remember where you put it. We are rotten to the core. Paul said in my flesh dwells no good thing. But anyway, I'm getting off the subject. And here now, Peter is here with Nathaniel and with Thomas. And the Bible says Thomas and Nathaniel. And there's two others here. He's with the sons of Zebedee, which means he's with James and John, the inner circle. Thomas, Nathaniel, and, and two others, which means actually others are the same. So two other of the 11 disciples. They're all together. And look at Peter says. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Verse 3. They said, we're going with you. We're going with you. Now remember, God called Peter to be a fisher of men. Now he's going back to the old trade. You know, you think about Peter, his denials, all his carnality. Of course, the Catholic Church says he's perfect, and that's why he was the first pope. Hello. What translation are they reading? Uh, he's not perfect, and he makes it very clear in the Bible. He had a mother-in-law. We've said that before, too. How can you be a pope and have a mother-in-law if you weren't married? And I've always said, who would want a mother-in-law if they weren't married? And you know that. But anyway, that joke's old. But, but here, here's Peter, and he says, let's go fishing. They all say, we're going fishing. So they're out on the sea, and the Bible said they, they fished all night. They didn't catch a thing. And they hear a voice from shore. It's Jesus. Peter doesn't recognize him right away. Throw your net on the other side. Or actually, he says, throw your net on the right side. I've, I've said to people before, you don't want to be on the wrong side. Throw your net on the right side. And immediately they got such a catch that they cannot even get the nets in. They have to take the boat and row to shore, dragging the net full of fish. You remember the time they caught 153? 
This was way more than that because they could get that in the boat. They can't even get this in the boat. And, and so John says, that's the Lord. Peter reminds me of me, as I said. He wraps up his cloak and he jumps in. And he's 100, 100 yards out, side length of a football field, and he swims to shore and the others have enough sense to roll the boat to shore. But that's Peter, isn't it? He's excited. But remember, Peter has not yet faced the Lord in regards to his, his failures. He's not, not, let, not yet talked to Jesus. He was hiding at the crucifixion, and then he was there when the Lord appeared, but there's a big group. It wasn't yet personal. The time wasn't right. And here he is with the others, and Jesus is standing on the shore. They get to the shore, and the Bible said Jesus already has food, fish prepared. Another miracle. Fish already cooking that he didn't even go catch. So he's here. He's got fish prepared. It's the third time Peter denied him three times. And then we have this great discourse, this great dialogue between Peter and Jesus. We pick up in verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter. Now, John's saying he's talking to Simon Peter, but how does Peter, I mean, how does Jesus address Simon Peter? Look at the text. He didn't call him Peter. He just calls him Simon. Going back to the name he used prior to his calling. Simon. He didn't say Simon Peter. John tells us he was talking to Simon Peter, but Jesus addresses him as Simon. That had to get his attention. Why is Jesus not calling me Peter? He said, from now on, you're Peter. Uh, you're going to be called Peter. I, I, you know, upon you, the, not you, but upon this rock, I'll build my church. But he says, you're going to be called Peter. Remember that episode in Matthew chapter 16? Now he's calling him Simon. Simon, and he asked him this question. Lovest thou me more than these? Verse 15, lovest thou me more than these? Now, great debate on the word these. What is that referring to, Pastor? I read 20 plus commentaries on that. And nobody agrees because the Greek grammar doesn't say. It doesn't say these as a reference to anyone, anyone or anything. So scholars, some say he's talking about fish. You want to go back to your old trade, Peter or Simon? Some say he's talking about these disciples. Some even say, well, he's talking about, do you love me more than these disciples love me? But that doesn't matter. We don't have the answer to that. But he asked Peter the question, do you love me more than these? And Peter knew what it was. And he asked Peter using the highest expression of love. There are four Greek words translated love. One is agape. That's what he uses to ask Peter. Philios is Philadelphia, brotherly love. Eros is sexual desire. And Sturgos is affection, or, uh, you know, affection. When you first fall in love, you know, you got that affectionate, that emotional passion between you. But Philios is brotherly love. And so he asked Peter, he says, do you love me, agape, with that self-sacrificing love? He didn't say it like that, but he said, do you love me? And Peter responded, yes, I, Philios, you. He used the lower form of brotherly love. Why? Well, Peter had to have been broken. Remember, he went out and wept bitterly. How do you think Peter felt? Huh? How do you feel when you totally mess up and you have to go crawling back? I, I've had to go crawling back to my earthly father plenty and my heavenly father. Every day I have to confess my sin to keep fellowship. But there's been times in my life where God has just broken me. Sometimes he's allowed just self-destruction. 
but he gets me on my knees to where he can finally speak to me. And Peter was a broken man. And now the Lord's bringing that all up in his mind. He didn't ask the other six that were there. He said, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Yes, Lord, I love you, Phileos. Then he says something here, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. And this is a reference to young or immature sheep. He wasn't talking about sheep, he's talking about people. Now, Peter would go on to be a pillar in the church. He would be a writer of Scripture. He would die as a martyr, die upside down. He even knew how he was going to die because the Lord told him. And he'd become a great man. But Jesus said, feed my little lambs. Would that be a reference to young Christians or young children? I don't know. Probably both. But he said, if you love me, feed my lambs. Now, the word feed here is an interesting Greek word. It's the same as used in verse 17, but it's not the same as used in the next verse. We'll look at that in a moment. But he asked him a second time. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? So he says the second time, Peter, again with agape, do you love me? And Peter answers with phileos. He says, you know I love you. You know I love you. Twice, Lord, you know I love you. And he answers again with phileos. Brotherly love. And then Jesus said here, feed my sheep. And this is a Greek word that means tend or shepherd. Tend or shepherd. Peter writes one of the greatest chapters in Scripture on what a pastor should be. He should be a shepherd. Not striving and in conflict with people, but loving them gently. And Peter writes that chapter. I can't think of Peter as being a gentle shepherd. I would think of Peter being a pastor. He'd be a slave driver. You either do it or I'll cut your head off. I almost did it one time in the garden, you know. I would think of Peter as being so impetuous and so spontaneous and so so rash and brass and carnal at times as a pastor. I'd think it'd be hard to follow the guy. You'd be afraid of him all the time. But no, Peter ended up being a great pillar in the church. And he ended up being a shepherd, a tender shepherd who fed and taught the sheep, a pastor teacher is what every pastor is called to be. Did you know that, Ephesians 4? Pastor, teacher, one and the same. You can't be a pastor if you're not teaching your people. You can't be a pastor if you're not tending to the flock. And so he says here, he said, I want you to tend or shepherd my sheep. Lead them. Lead them by example and by love. Peter answers him again, and he says, feed my sheep. And then in verse 17, he says to him the final time, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, Lovest thou me? And again, he asked Peter if he loves him, but notice, and you don't have it in your Bible, but when you get your Strong's Concordance, and some of you have at home, you'll notice that here's now the word philios. So God lowers, lowers it to come down to Peter's level so Peter can grasp it, and then Peter responds. He says, Lord, you know all things, and you know I love you, and he uses the same word. But notice here it says, Peter was grieved because he said unto him, the what? Third time. <laughs> now it's come home. Now Peter's thinking, here I am with the Lord, and here's these three times. It's the third time I've seen him. He just showed me who he is. We got all this fish. You know, I have to face him. He's a broken man. Do you know God can begin to use Peter now? Because he's broken. When I was a young guy, as a pastor, I sometimes did some carnal things. I shared a couple funny stories. Someone had brought that up. 
I don't know, this morning or the other day about how I told the story about how I had this drug addict and I followed her to her place and kicked the door in and grabbed her and brought her out to my car and brought her back to the base, knocked the cocaine all over and the Jamaicans were around there. That was not spiritual. You know, I was like Peter at that time in my life. But God couldn't use me like He needed to until He broke me and He's continued to break me throughout my Christian experience. You'd think I'd learn. God has broken me and broken me and broken me again and again and again. But that's the only way God can use us is when we're totally ready to say, oh God, you got me where you want me. What else can I do? Three times. And Peter says here, being grieved, and this word grieved is translated here in 1 Peter 1.6, heavy, heaviness. It's translated in John, sorrowful in, in regards to a woman having a baby. So you know how Peter, Peter feels inside, right? Inward pain, like insurmountable, just unbelievable inward pain. He's grieved, he's broken, he's sorrowful, he had wept and he'd wept and he'd wept, and now he's facing the Lord, and he's just, oh, Lord, you know I love you. And then the Lord says again, feed my sheep. I love this little story. Malcolm Muggeridge, a famous and highly respected British journalist for many years, was an ardent atheist. I mean, a hard, hard atheist. His opinions and thoughts were craved by and coveted by people, but, but he came to know Jesus. He got saved. And he began to write for Time Magazine. He was a great writer. By the end of his career, he was considered the dean of broadcasting in Britain. He became, had become a Christian, and he came to Washington, D.C., and he, he had to speak there, and he told his life story, shared his testimony. But then he made a number of comments about the world, and they were all kind of pessimistic, how tough, how tough the world was and how bad things were going, kind of like we feel right now, right? And he made these comments, and somebody said, is there any room for optimism? Because you sound pessimist, pessimistic. And he said, I could, be not, I could not be more optimistic than I am. Is because my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And then he had a long pause and he said this. After he paused, he added, just think if the early church had pinned its hopes on the Roman Empire. Hey, if you're, you're pinning your hopes on the government or your pension or whatever you think you have going for you, not the government maybe, but whatever you want to, pin your hopes on, you're missing the most important hope of all eternity, the hope of Jesus Christ. The hope of Jesus Christ. I'll close with this little poem. He was bruised and brought our healing. He was pierced and eased our pain. He was persecuted and, and, and so we could have freedom. He was dead and brought us life. He's risen and brought us power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand Him. The armies can't defeat Him. The schools can't explain Him and leaders can't ignore Him. Herod couldn't kill Him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse Him. Nero couldn't crush Him. The grave couldn't hold Him. Even Hitler couldn't silence him. Other religions can't replace him. And the world can't explain him away. He is light, love, life, and lore. He's goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He's holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. He's my Redeemer. He's my Savior. As we learn Wednesday, He's my Lamb. He's my guide. He's my peace. He's my joy. He's my comfort. 
He is my Lord, my Lord and my God. And He reigns today, and He reigns forever and ever. Praise God. Can you say hallelujah? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank You. You reign. Thank You for these examples of faith, hope, and charity, God. We know we don't deserve to be saved, but because of our small, tiny amount of faith and Your grace and mercy, You've saved us. Lord, thank You for these examples. Thank You for coming back to life. God, thank You for sending Your Son who rose again on the third day that we can have eternal life. Bless us, God. We thank You for this. We rejoice and celebrate Your resurrection, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.